0: If you turn to the 12th chapter of John's Gospel, and as we turn our attention to a passage that normally uh, we would cover during Passion Week, during Easter week, uh, we're going to revisit that passage that we covered a couple of months ago, but from a very different perspective. Because this passage is not just a passage that applies to us at Easter. Uh, it's a passage that is very important to our daily walks with the Lord. You see, Jesus came... So that we might have life. Jesus didn't just come to make a show. Jesus didn't just come because it was uh, his father's will. Jesus did not just come to Jerusalem because he didn't have anything better to do. And he was already on the hill of the Mount of Olives in Bethany. And you know there was nothing happening there. So he went to Jerusalem. Jesus came... Because he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the only Savior of all of the world. Amen? And, and so as we look at this passage, this Messiah's parade, this very noisy and, and, and very strange event when you look at it from the perspective of most of the people that were watching. Here you have a, a, a parade, if you will, uh, of the king of the Jews he's going to be announced as that but it's kind of a lousy parade it, it, it's not exactly something someone would watch and go "Wow, I don't know who he is but I want to follow him you, you see because we follow Christ by faith we don't walk by sight it's not because Jesus came in majesty the first time it's because Jesus came in humility the first time that we are even able to have a relationship with God Because had he come as the conquering king, the king of kings and lord of lords the first time, no one would have survived. Our sins would have made sure that we were all wiped out. But he came as the humble high priest of heaven on a donkey. Would you pray with me and we'll pick up in verse 12 of chapter 12 here in John's gospel. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world, that the world through him you Jesus brought salvation the world through you would be saved or did anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and so you came on a donkey Lord so that we could identify with your humanness your humility in putting off the glories of heaven and coming to this earth to save us and so God we pray that you'd speak now through your word we ask these things in Christ's name amen Verse 12, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, remember this is Passover week, so this is the feast of Passover. The region surrounding Jerusalem would have surely had at least a million, possibly two million people, because every able-bodied man uh, during the course of the year had a couple of feast days that were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate, and one of them was Passover. So every able-bodied Jewish man and his family heads off to Jerusalem. They're camping in the hills. There are people everywhere. It, It looks like some kind of a concert venue with people camping on people's front lawns, their porches. Uh, it it had that air of something big happening, but it was really big for the Jewish people. And so here they are gathered everywhere. And when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they, they took branches out of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And so it's very clear that somewhere, someone starts this cry of this huge thing going on. And we can kind of equate it in modern terms. You can almost see somebody gets word something big is happening and they tweet it out, the king is coming. They they did a Facebook post, an Instagram post, the king is coming. And as was true then and as is true now, very often things like that get said and people don't quite understand the whole picture. Happens to us all day, every day in our news media, it happens to us in the tweets that come out across the internet, all kinds of stuff. People just post stuff. And that's actually what's happened here. Someone in the crowd realizes, because they actually have read Zechariah 9-9, which comes next... That the Lord, the Messiah, is going to actually come on a donkey. And so Jesus is on that donkey, and the recordation of how he got that donkey is in the other three Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke record those details. So here comes Jesus into Jerusalem. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. So here's your Jewish perspective. From Zechariah 9, verse 9, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And now here comes the wonderful disciples. His disciples did not understand these things at first. The same picture we see over and over. The people closest to Jesus didn't quite get what was going on. Because even some of the disciples were infected with the thought process that ultimately the coming king needed to be also a conquering warrior. Which is actually true. But had they actually understood what the scripture said, they would have understood that Jesus was not coming once, he was coming twice. The first time he comes as a humble king On the foal of a donkey, he is not coming the second time as a humble king, but as a conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. So they're going, I don't don't quite get this. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. You see, they then got the whole picture. Hindsight's pretty good at helping us understand the whole picture, amen? So they would look back on these events and go... Mm, now I get what Daniel said and David said and Zachariah said and Isaiah said. I, I now can put all those pieces together because the Bible actually paints the whole picture that Jesus is going to come as a sacrificial king. All one need do is read Isaiah 52 and 53 and if you read those two chapters alone, you're going to find out that the king who is coming is coming to die. And he's coming to die because the chastisement of my peace was put upon him. If you read Isaiah chapter 9, you understand that there will be a child who was born and a son who was given. One person, two things. Of course, he was born to Mary and Joseph. But he was given by God. So, they're beginning to get something is going on in this passage. They didn't quite get it all, but once it all happened, they put the pieces together. And therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. You think? Here's a small group that we've already met. They're there, and and they're do not roll that stone away from that tomb. Can't you smell what, forget it, don't do it. But because Lazarus is raised and because Lazarus is traveling with Jesus, because he's standing right there and people that knew Lazarus before he died knew that he did die and now saw him after he was raised from the dead, they're all wondering, yep, that's the former dead guy. And that's exactly who we are as we've looked at these last couple of chapters, you see In this room, there are a whole bunch of formerly dead people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive. Amen? Amen. Former drug addicts, former alcoholics, former womanizers, former adulterers, former thieves, former liars, and such were, as we just studied, some of you actually, and such were all of us at one point in time. Amen? So, now we have a legit, real dead guy who's walking with Jesus. And they're going, you look strangely familiar. Weren't you? You were in the obituaries a couple of weeks ago, right? They bore witness. <laughs> yep, he used to be dead, but he's still, he's still with us. And for this reason, the people also met him. Because that he had heard, they had heard that he'd done this sign. So you can see how the crowd is kind of getting worked up over this whole thing. You have somebody who understands, at least from a prophetic view, that this is how the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is going to come. So it's much like when you're... You ever watch people try and start the wave at Dodger Stadium? There's that one person who just will not give up, right? And they're out there, usually out in the outfield, about center field. You see the one guy. And nothing happens. And then the next time he tries it, two more people stand up with him. And before you know it, it goes all the way around the stadium. It's kind of the same thing here. Hosanna. No, I don't think so. Hosanna. Hosanna Hosanna to the king of kings. You know, pretty soon you got all the way across the whole room. Hosanna. Because they didn't have cell phones. They weren't tweeting it out. Somebody up on the hill yells, Hosanna, and finally down at the bottom, they're all going, oh, it's the king of kings. And then Jesus shows up with the formerly dead guy and the donkey. Say, what? You got us worked up about that? You can imagine there was a little confusion going on, amen? They met him because they'd heard about the Lazarus thing. And you got somebody up on the hill saying, It's the king of Israel. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, verse 19, You see, they're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This incredible picture of the Messiah's parade. You see, as you look at this, you really have three basic groups of people that are involved in this particular passage of Scripture. And they all see it from their perspective, much like the world that we live in today. When you talk to people about who is Jesus to you, you get all kinds of really interesting answers. If you talk to a Buddhist or if you talk to a Muslim, oh, well, he's a prophet. You talk to an atheist, he's a figment of your imagination. You talk to a marginal Christian, oh, he's, my mom said I have to listen to him because he's at church. You talk to a real believer, he's my Savior and my Lord, amen? You, You see, people still see Jesus from their own personal perspectives. And that's what was going on in this parade. You have the Passover visitors, they're looking for something to happen. This is Passover week, it's a big deal. Ultimately, they're going to celebrate their freedom from bondage. They're, they're making this declaration that God delivered them, that the angel of death has spared them, and the blood has covered them, and they'll ultimately look forward to the ten days of awe in the fall, where the atonement will be made. They're seeing it from a very Jewish perspective. But as you look at it, what what did this mean to Jesus? How did he see it? Can I tell you this is actually why he came? Jesus came to die. There was never another plan. There wasn't a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C, and things kind of messed up, and God, you know, wasn't really on it. So they needed to, along the way, adjust the plan... The Romans had not become so powerful that they overpowered God. The Jewish people had not become so religiously in tune with things that they knew better than God. And the visitors who were watching weren't so daft that they didn't really care whether it was God or the Romans or anybody else. You see, to Jesus, he came for the purpose of giving his life a ransom for many, and for those who would believe in him, they shall be saved. That's why he came. So this whole picture from Jesus' perspective, this is why I came. I intend to die. I came to give my life. To the local people, they're thinking, well, this is kind of... You know, okay, there's some things that we understand and we kind of know a little bit about the Old Testament and we we witnessed the raising of Lazarus. Maybe there's some connection. They're trying to put the pieces together and connect the dots, but they don't quite have the whole picture. And then you have the religious leaders who knew those Old Testament scriptures that clearly talked about the Messiah coming to die. And so here's what happened with the Jewish rabbis. The Jewish rabbis looking at the situation, not believing, because remember the Sadducees did not actually even believe in the resurrection. You have the Pharisees who did. So they're arguing back and forth who's right and who's wrong. So they came up with this plan. There's got to be two messiahs. One that's going to come and die and one that's going to come and rule and reign. And so this is the guy that's going to die. We're okay with that because we don't like him anyway. You see, people believe what they believe because they believe it. That may sound strange to you, but that's what happens. These are the facts as I know them, and I put them together logically, and the secret ingredient to everyone believing correctly is something that's a gift. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, and that is a gift of God. So God gives us the gift of faith to take all these things that we see and know and understand, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes on, I need to believe in the King. I need to believe in the Savior. I need to give my life to Jesus. What did this event actually really mean? What did it? I mean, if you're looking at it, what did it mean to the people of Israel? You see, when you think about it, as far as Jesus is concerned, it was his obedience to the Father. But I want to focus in on the Romans. Can you imagine? Now, think about this. We live in a country that is blessed of God. We live in a country that has resources like really no other country on the face of the earth. We live in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. We, we live in the most blessed nation on the face of the earth. And so when you go to a military parade, if on the 4th of July you're so blessed to be someplace to where you, you see this extravagant display of the military might of the United States of America, it's pretty impressive. I used to go to the... Naval Air Station at Miramar and watch the air show every year. You know, when, it, when, when a B-1B Lancer bomber flies by at nearly supersonic speed, there's a reason they call it the rolling thunder. Because it can, like, knock you off of your chair just by flying by. Now, put this into Roman terms. The Romans were the United States of America of the day. They were the most powerful military... They had the the greatest economy, they ruled everyone and everything. Their kingdom reached all the way to Scotland. They went all the way to the border of the Mongol territories in modern day Mongolia and China. They ruled the known world for the most part. And they were powerful. So now imagine That you've got some guy on the top of the hill, it's the king of Israel. And here's the Roman legion gathered in the city of Jerusalem to keep an eye on the crowd going, Are you kidding me? That's their ruler? Have you ever been to a Roman triumph? Do you have any idea who we are, what we are, what we represent? That's your king? Can I tell you that a lot of the world still laughs at our king? You see, because we tell them we believe in someone we can't see. We tell them that we have faith that our eternal destiny is secure in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. We say to them that we actually believe his word, which was written physically a couple thousand years ago at the earliest. And so they say, Are you kidding me? You see, because here's the Roman perspective. And you can go to Rome today and see this perspective. If you go to central Rome, you'll see a thing called Trajan's Column. Trajan's Column is 115 feet tall. It was placed there after the Dacian Wars, two of them, where Emperor Trajan went and defeated the the region of, of Dacia. And when he came back, he brought with him the spoils of war, and if you look at that column, beginning at the bottom, there is a frieze that travels all the way around the column. It goes around the column some 28 times. There are 2,663 individual people on that column. They represent everything from generals to uh, places and, and people that were taken captive, Emperor Trajan himself is on it 58 times. You see, to a Roman, they're thinking, when we come conquer somebody, when we have a victory, we erect one of these things. And we have a three-day parade with all the spoils of war and the conquering generals and the prisoners of war that have been taken captive. You see, to them, this is hardly a victory. The world's going to laugh at you. The world's going to mock you. The world is going to scorn you. The world is going to look at your life and say, you, Jeffrey Gill, are nuts. You want to see a victory? Look at my portfolio. You want to see a victory? Look at my house. You want to see a victory? I've lived an extra. Two years because I take super vitamin infused water in every day. More power to you. My king came on a donkey. My king died on Calvary's cross. My king still lives. You see, that's the world we still live in. Still mocks Jesus. Still says, that, what kind of peace is that? I, I want peace like Alfred Nobel sought after. Isn't it kind of weird to you that the Nobel Peace Prize was originated from a guy who invented dynamite? It's kind of something a little not right with that. He was actually troubled by the fact that he had created this incredible explosive. And so the peace prize was to kind of make amends for what he invented. But you see the world's still looking for peace. And the people in that crowd are in the city of peace, which is Yerusalem. That's what it means, city of peace or the foundation of peace. They're thinking, okay, here comes this new king. Maybe he'll get rid of Rome because they're obviously here to make war. What kind of peace are you looking for today? Are you looking for the world's peace? Because Jesus said it this way My peace I leave you. Not peace as the world gives do I give you, but my peace I give. You see, his peace is peace with God. That was the problem for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve made a choice to declare war on God's holiness and direction in their life. They chose a new ruler, and the ruler was Adam and Eve. They said, we want to do our own thing. We don't like the fact that you've told us we can't eat of that tree, so we're eating of that tree, and we don't care what you do. And in response to that, God says, well, you have a problem. You now have a busted relationship with me. Because I actually am the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord of Heaven. And I actually tell you what to do, you don't tell me what to do. And so what was God's response? Wasn't mine, because I just wiped them out. I'm sorry, Adam and Eve were going to be, I'm getting me new ones. I don't know who it would have been, I would have given them some other names. Like, well, there were two people here before you, but they messed up. But God decides because he's loving and kind and wants peace that instead he's going to slaughter an innocent animal and cover their sin. He's going to make atonement for them by grace. You see, that's the peace that you absolutely must have before you exit this planet. Because without that peace, Your destination is someplace other than heaven. That's what Jesus said. When Jesus makes the case that, look, there is a place that you can go where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die, he wasn't playing. He wasn't just trying to shock them into something. He was speaking of a literal hell, and the choice is you can either spend eternity in heaven or in hell. It's one or the other. It's in or out. It's saints or angels. It's that simple. You see, the world doesn't like to hear that. The world wants to have the world's kind of peace. And The world's kind of peace is prosperity, lack of conflict, and all those things, by the way, are great. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for temporal peace. Temporal prosperity. The beauty of a sunset, all of those things which we look at and go, you know, I'd rather have it that way than that way. Who likes war, amen? Nobody wants war. If you want war, there's something seriously wrong with your mind. So Jesus says, what kind of peace? Basically, they were ignorant of their own scriptures. Because if they had read their Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what they would have called the Tanakh, The Torah, the first five books, the Tanakh, what we would call the Law and the Prophets, the rest of it, together. If they had read that, they would have understood that the king comes to die. But he's not staying that way. And he's not just coming one time. You see, because the prophet Zechariah made it very clear that the king is coming again. You see, people think that's a New Testament thing. And while the New Testament illuminates the thought process, you see, they wanted the conquering king the first time. They wanted the king that was going to put down Rome the first time. They wanted to have prosperity the first time. In a practical sense, in a provisional sense, they did not want what the humble king brought, which is the chastisement of... For my peace was placed upon him, Jesus. Exactly as the prophet Isaiah said. His stripes healed me. And you and anyone else who will believe in his name. You see, they wanted... What will happen the second time, the first time? They wanted a ruling conquering king. Make no mistake about it, family... Because scripture says so. Verse 11 of that Revelation chapter 19 passage says this, And now I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. Any of you who want to ride horses, but we can't do it because we live in the city, just hold on. (laughs) And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. With righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a a name written that no one knew except himself and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name was called the Word of God. How does John's gospel start? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Who's coming the second time? God. The Word of God. The one who's holy and true. The one who is the Word. You see, what the world wanted then is what the world wants now. They want to do things their own way. And Jesus said, if I come the first time as just the Word... If I come the first time as just faithful and true, if I come the first time as the conquering king, the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth, then everyone dies. Because mankind was rebellious. Mankind's still rebellious. Anybody in here praising God for grace right now? Amen? Amen? Amen. You see, so... When you finish this passage off and you look at what it says, the reason Jesus came on the donkey the first time is because he would have had to destroy all of mankind had he come as the faithful one, the Lord of Lords. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the armies of heaven, that would be you all, coming back with him after the church is taken home. That's why the church doesn't exist in Revelation chapter 6 to 19. There's no evidence of the church. They're in heaven. But they're coming back. Can't wait for that day. Clothed in fine linen, clean and white. The only way that we're clean and white is because he's made us clean and white. Amen? His blood has taken my scarlet sins and made them white as snow. But notice what happens when he comes a second time. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. His word is sharp as a two-edged sword divides between joint and marrow. Soul and spirit declares the book of Hebrews. Amen? Oh, he's going to be speaking the word. The first time he spoke, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But the second time, notice what happens. Then he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He's not coming on a donkey the next time. He himself treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? He's coming back as the one they were looking for the first time. To deal a death blow to the Antichrist and his minions. To those who choose not to follow the Lord Jesus Christ by grace and through faith. But Jesus knew that he had to die. But he also knows he's coming again. You, you see, that's all that patience that was exhibited. Would you have cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? I wouldn't have. I'd go get him and get him and get him and get her and do that. Let break I'm David in, I'm Daviding them. Break their teeth out of their mouth, oh God. You see, but he didn't. That's how much he loves us. You see, he could have. He was still God the first time. But he came as the humble high priest of heaven on a donkey to tell me, Jeff, I love you. I'm not coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords this time because it would mean your death I'm coming to draw you in the next time he's coming to sort it all out that's why Jesus will say oh foolish ones slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken ought not the Christ to suffer and enter into his glory you see Jesus was trying to tell him. Look, this is all part of the plan. And I'll be back. You see, sometimes we forget that he's coming again. The Jewish religious leaders are like, that's the one that's going to die. There'll be another one coming. That's a foolish mistake. That's not hearing the word of the Lord. That's not believing the knowledge that you already have. All they had to do was actually listen to the words of Jesus. They would have known exactly what was going on. He didn't hide it. Jesus didn't wander around in the the fringes of society and just do these little things in secret. He is in the middle of Jerusalem doing this. He's speaking to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. He's confronting them. He says, for this reason I came. You see, too often, people say, well, the the Jews killed Jesus. Or too often, they'll say, well, the Romans killed Jesus. No, Jeff Gill killed Jesus. I killed him. Jesus died on Calvary's cross for me. That's what he came to do. If we had all been taken off the planet and one at a time put back on the earth so that there was no one on the earth but you, Jesus still would have come. He still would have died on Calvary's cross. He still would have been nailed to the tree. That's why he came. He came so that I could have life. So that I could be forgiven my sin. So I could have peace with God. Because my selfish, warring heart would have been just like Adam and Eve without Jesus. I would have still been doing my own thing. I would have been going about my happy little life telling God what to do. But instead, he says, Jeff, I love you. Yes, you are a knucklehead, but if you will believe on my name, you will be saved. Anybody else thankful for that? I am, hallelujah. Hallelujah. It helps to personalize the story. So often we skip over, that's the Easter message. No, you put you in as a first person character. You stand there as Pilate. You stand there as the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. You get into the story and imagine you would have done no different. But he would have been saying, Father, forgive Jeff. Because he is a real knucklehead and he does not know what he's doing. He would have given you the choice of the two thieves on the cross. They both heard the same message and one responded and one did not. That's why this passage is so important that we don't just skip over it. The Lamb of God had to die for you. He had to die. That's why the Jewish religious leaders are so crazed over this. It's like, look, they're going after him? Read it properly. They're going after him? That guy? Seriously? Now on one hand, it's an exaggeration because everybody actually is going after him. But from their perspective, him? That's their king? They threw their coats on the ground for this guy? They shouted Hosanna because of the dude on the donkey? You can almost hear in the back of their minds, this is as good as it gets for them? They need to take a trip to Rome. Let me show them what a real king looks like. Can I tell you the world is yelling that message at you today? Oh, the real king is the Supreme Court. The real king lives in the White House. The real king lives in the State House. The real king lives in some courthouse. Oh no, the real king lives in heaven and he's coming again. That's why what you do with this information is so important. Because the world is yelling at you, well, you know, as long as you're an American. As long as you believe in democracy, as long as you have faith in the courthouse, as long as you follow the laws, as long as you please you, as long as you existentially believe that things are as they are because that's what you believe, you're fine. Sorry to say no, you're not. There is only one Son of God. There is only one way and one truth and one life. We'll get to it in two chapters. And unless you believe in him, you are not saved. Maybe that irritates some of you in here. I pray it does. Because, on the one hand, the gospel is the most divisive message ever preached because it demands that you make a choice. On the other hand, it's a free gift that enables you to believe. So, on one hand, it presents the problem. On the other hand, it gives you the solution. And so as Jesus begins this final week of his life on earth, what's he really saying? He's saying, I came the first time so that you can see and believe. Some of you may not like that. But there is truth to what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2. You see, you can believe that now and be saved. Or you can not believe. But both groups of people are one day going to bow their knee. To King Jesus. Because he still is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Regardless of what people want to believe about the message that was just given. And so... One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is exactly who Revelation 19 says he is. One day he's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. That's who Jesus is. The apostle Paul puts that into our time and says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father whether they're on the earth or under the earth wherever they're at everyone will one day recognize King Jesus. The only question is, is it today? Amen? Would you stand with me? I'm going to bring the worship team back out. This is an important question. Because one day, everybody is going to acknowledge that fact. You will. You may be saying in your mind or in your heart right now, well, not me. I want to make this really clear. Yes, you will one day. So, so you can say, no, that's not for me today. But I want to give you the opportunity to change which side you're on. Because that decision is so important, your entire eternity hangs on it. Where you will spend it. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now and close your eyes. Believers, please pray for those that maybe do not yet know the Lord Jesus. If you're here today and you're saying to yourself, man, I'm on the wrong side. I I want to know Jesus. You see, he came and he died for you personally so that you could spend eternity with God the Father in heaven and have your sins forgiven. But you have to believe that and you have to receive that. And so if you're here today and you're saying, Jeff, I don't know Jesus, but I want to. I'm going to ask you to just simply slip your hand up right where you're at and I want to pray with you to receive Christ right now. Change sides. Make a decision today that you want to spend eternity in heaven. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Because you have a choice. You can go wherever you want to go. You can do what you want to do. But God loves you enough that Jesus came the first time in this pitiful parade on a donkey so that you could know him personally so that you could spend eternity with him. And if that's you and you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, just slip your hand up right where you're at. Anyone else at all? Anywhere in the sanctuary, just put your hand up. Don't miss out. I see that hand too. Praise the Lord. Don't be ashamed of Jesus because he came and died for you. Just put your hand. We're going to pray together. That's it. That's all it takes. See that hand. See that hand back there too. Praise God. Praise the Lord. This is the most important decision you will ever make while you're here on this earth. Don't miss the opportunity. For those of you that raised your hands, go ahead and put your hand down. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me. I am not praying for you. You need to ask and invite the Lord into your own life right now. I'm going to lead you in some words, but they've got to come from you. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. And I need a Savior. And I'm inviting you into my life right now to be my Savior and my Lord. I am bowing my knee right now. To you, King Jesus. I'm professing that you alone can forgive my sin. Thank you for forgiving my sin. and Writing my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Change my life. Make me more like you. I give you my life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Welcome to the family.